Hey, Sam. Hey, Teresa. What's up? Not much. Um, it finally feels like spring is here in New York, at least, though. I know you were on spring break. How has your break been? It was great. I, well, you know, college, they didn't give us a real spring break, only two days in the middle of the week off. But, you know, we made the best of those two days. We went to a nearby beach and did some painting. And, um, you know, the people on the trip said that my painting was really good. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, not to brag, but I did a pretty good painting and it's behind me you, now. What did you paint? Why don't you tell the viewers, the listeners? Yeah, one of the paintings was just this, like, it was like a tree person, but the tree person was crying like water. Um, so, you know, basically we had those greens, we had those blues, we had some yellow in there. And then the sand blew onto my wet paint. So the sand also contributed to the color of the painting. That's really great. I think you need to get some tips from our previous podcast guests about how to improve your painting skills a little bit. But <laughs> Dominic happy. Chambers has nothing against me. <laughs> well, I'm happy you've had such a good break. And we have a great show for you guys today. We are going to be interviewing the Chicago legend Psalm 1 over a glass of pink lemonade. Great. Let's get into it. So for this week's drink, we chose, well, I chose pink lemonade. Um, I'm pretty sure we've done lemonade before in this podcast, but pink lemonade is, you know, completely, completely different from regular lemonade. It's basically a whole different breed, if you will. Um, You know, it's actually kind of weird because when I was young, you know, I was one of those kids, obviously, who thought that like chocolate milk came from chocolate cows. But I never thought that pink lemonade came from pink lemons. And I don't think that's like a common conception either. And I'm like, why is that? You know, like, I feel like it would make more sense for lemons to be pink than chocolates. Oops, than than cows to be like chocolate. Do you know what I mean? I never thought chocolate milk came from chocolate cows. So I'm okay, sorry. That's not my question. My question <laughs> is why don't people think that pink lemonade comes from pink lemons? I feel like that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I think I'm just going to bypass everything you just said. Riddle me that, Sam. Riddle me that. I never thought chocolate milk came from chocolate cows. I never thought that pink lemonade came from pink lemons. But I think there is a debate to be had over whether pink lemonade tastes different than real lemonade. I think it definitely does. I think pink lemonade is sweeter, for sure. Other people say it's more tart, though, and that there is an actual difference. But there's no like official difference. Like none of the people have published anything about like whether they have different stuff in it. But sometimes they add grenadine as the food coloring. Mm. So it's sweeter. Okay, okay. I knew it had a sweeter vibe. You know, my gut instinct, which is always right, was just telling me that. Yeah. So it just depends on the vibe of the drink, the drink maker. Anyway. Pick lemonade is a fascinating concept, um, but we're going to move on to today's show where we are interviewing the Chicago-born musical artist, Psalm One, 
Um, I grew up knowing a lot of Psalm 1's music, um, but I think Chicago was this weird thing where you don't really necessarily know Chicago's musical history unless you dig into it. So I really got familiar with her music in high school. But recently, she's been doing some super dope stuff. Um, she released a project last summer called Big Silky Volume 2. And she just released a new single a couple weeks ago called Anxious, Nervous, and Imperfect. And it's my favorite song I've heard this year. And um, she's just doing incredible stuff. So we wanted to bring on someone from Chicago who's absolutely killing it. But Teresa, what have you thought of her music? Yeah, so I actually um, didn't listen to Psalm 1 when um, we both lived in Chicago, but I was more recently introduced to her and her energy on her raps and her music is just incredible. Also, um, the title Anxious, Nervous and Imperfect. I feel like (laughs) if I were to fail a job interview and they're like, three words to describe yourself, those those would be the three words I would describe myself with realistically. So um, I can relate to being anxious, nervous, and imperfect because, you know, we stay humble. (laughs) But I'm so excited to talk to someone, um, not only because she's from Chicago, but also because she is a badass female rapper. And I'm just so excited to learn more about um, her single, as well as her album that came out last year. And for those of you who might not be familiar with someone, um, she is an artist from Chicago who actually debuted her album Biochemistry while studying chemistry at the University of Illinois. She is not only an independent artist, but also part of groups Nacrobats, Rapper Chicks, and Big Silky. And most recently in 2019, she released her album Fight of the Wig and recently debuted her single Anxious, Nervous, and Imperfect. So with that, do we want to call her up right now? Great. Let's call her up. Yo. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Thanks so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. We're super excited to have a Chicago legend with us today. We're both from Chicago. Um, so we, we'd love to just talk to you about some like Chicago stuff and then a lot of the new music, if that's cool. Yeah, that's fine. Awesome, awesome. Um, so first we saw you went to Whitney. Um, we both went to Lab. So we're like definitely familiar with- <laughs> Yeah, all my friends went to Lab. <laughs> yeah. I feel like the Whitney Lab connection is very strong. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. What part of the city did you grow up? I was born uh, on the north side, like Ravenswood area, but I grew up in Inglewood. So from age like nine through 19 or so, I was in Inglewood. Awesome, awesome. And how did you see the city and um, maybe that part of the city influencing your music specifically? It was weird because... Um, Growing up in the hood, it was like a lot of gangster rap, a lot of like, you know, in the 90s, it was like a crazy gang wars going on in Chicago, especially in Inglewood. And I, you know, I didn't want any part of that because I wasn't gangbanging, you know, I was a little nerdy kid. So for me, it just felt super, super dangerous and kind of irresponsible. I mean, I know different now as an adult, but it influenced my music in a way and I just in a way that I wanted to be more intellectual with it. 
especially considering I was going to like, um, I was going to like advanced placement classes and going to like, you know, um, magnet schools and then going to Whitney Young, which is, you know, smart kids school or whatever. So it was just like, for me, it was like having that duality of knowing that like, even though I grew up in the hood, that my intellect could get me out of that situation. Um, so yeah, it influenced my music by being like, I want to stay in the hood, you know? Yeah. Does that feel like a completely different lifetime now? Or is it still something that you think about a lot? Well, no, because as you know, my, my grandmother refuses to leave Inglewood. We have a home there and it's like the family home it's paid for. So she's like, I'm not leaving. Like this house paid for. So, uh, I still, you know, have ties to Inglewood. A lot of my family still stays in different parts of Inglewood. And now I'm, I'm living in uh, North Minneapolis, which I think arguably isn't like comparatively isn't necessarily like as bad. i I love, I love living in North Minneapolis because it's diverse. Um, but there are some, like, some real um, dangerous parts of it. So, like, I can never get away from, no matter, no matter where I live or no matter, you know, how far I go up the food chain, I always, you know, have, uh, you know, a compassion or a stake in the hood, as it were, because that's where I'm from. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, and kind of talking about that early Chicago scene, as someone who grew up, I was born in 1999, so I grew up a little bit after, like, a lot of that stuff went down. Yeah. And when I was growing up, I noticed that it was almost impossible to find anything out about those early Chicago hip-hop days. Um, like, not in the way where I feel like New York really remembers its legends, all of that. Do yeah. you see that problem where Chicago doesn't really have this, like, chronicled history in the same way as other cities? I think it's starting to happen. Um, I was in a crew, oh, I am in a crew called Nacrobats. They started in 1993. I didn't, I didn't join the crew until like 2000. Um, so that, that was, you know, my, that was my Chicago history, you know, hip hop history. And they just put out a book and uh, right before the pandemic hit, we had like a show at Emporium where it was really um, celebrating all the, the crew members that came like before me and like real, like in, in the early nineties. So yeah, there, you're right. There isn't a ton chronicling, you know, early Chicago hip hop, but I think that people are starting to get the idea that if we don't, we don't do it, it's not gonna get done. You know, so um, I think it's happening as we speak. Sort of going off of that, um, I feel like that's reflected in your music and that you've never really shied away from talking about like real topics. And do you think that or how do you think that your music is changing as you sort of um, get to know better sort of like what you want and are have been in the scene for longer? Yeah, I think as a as a younger person doing hip hop, it was more about trying to be impressive. Cause I came up in like the golden age, which means it's just like at Whitney Young, I can just remember like everybody just trying to have the biggest words and the the longest metaphors and trying to just sound the smartest as it were. Um, And then when I signed my first deal, 
in 2007, that was it, it. It changes when you when you when you sign a record deal at a at any kind of label that sells records. It's like now you want to sell records. Um, I never really necessarily wanted to be on the radio, but I always wanted to sell a ton of records, and that can dictate how you make music. Um, fast forward to now, I don't care about necessarily like selling a million records. I care about my the micro community of people that I've built like. Uh, on Bandcamp and on things like that, where people who I know are listening to my music and they appreciate it, um, especially considering selling tons of records as a rapper isn't gonna, that's not necessarily the things that's gonna keep, you know, keep me fed. You know, I, I have, you know, I have a degree in chemistry. I, I have, I'm on the board of an organization. Like I can do a lot of things to take care of myself. So when it comes to the music, I just want to remain true to my story. And whereas before I was just trying to be impressive or sell records, now I'm just trying to be um, be honest about my life and rap about my feelings and my experience. Um, you know, and that I think that's the difference as you get older. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And you were talking about kind of cultivating this community on Bandcamp. And yeah. your camp is elite. Like you definitely <laughs> have very organized and it's so exciting to look through. But what does it mean to kind of cultivate that community? How do you continue to keep growing it and um, without feeling like you're just doing things to sell records? Yeah, that good question. Um, someone asked me the other day, like, how do you how do you get your Bandcamp popping? And I'm just like, man, it's wild because I started my Bandcamp when my label was ignoring me. So it, it was just a way for me to put out music and not have to worry about like, like, like around 2008, 2009, it was really difficult to get music on like iTunes uh, and Spotify wasn't really a thing yet. It was like Pandora and it was like iTunes. And streaming was so new and a lot of independent artists did not know how to get their music on there, myself included. And uh, as far as digital streaming, my label had all the rights to that. So a friend of mine just said, hey, you're going to lose all your fans if, if you don't put out some music soon. And I kind of took that to heart. So I started making uh, mixtapes. For, and putting them up on Bandcamp for free or pay your own price. And most people, most people just downloaded it for free. But you know, there were some people who would spend 10, 20, even a hundred dollars on a project. And I thought that was insane. Like, why would you do that? But a lot of people were just, they wanted to support because they knew that this music was free. Like, especially like that was like the height of the blog era too, where like you would spend thousands of dollars just to give away a project, you know, like you're not making any money on this, on, on the music at all. So for me, it was a great time to just put out, you know, covers of stuff and like mixtapes and like things that I didn't, I didn't mind putting out for free. And fast forward to 2019, where I put out my EP, Don't Get Lazy Now, I decided to put up a paywall for everything on my band camp. It would still be cheap. It wouldn't be like in insane prices or anything, but I decided that, okay, I've given away music for 10 years. 
like literally on this platform. So let me see what'll happen if I, you know, start charging. And it and it worked. Um, and I think part of it was because the quality of the music went up, and also because my fans of my band camp knew that they were getting all this music. They're getting all this music for free. So, you know, it wasn't a big deal for me to start asking them to pay a, a small fee for it. Um, so like, that's like bad advice for someone who wants to get their band camp popping like right now. Uh, but I think a good, a good thing is to, you know, give away some music, you know, and then charge for the stuff that you put more into, you know? Yeah. And kind of like looking at your page right now, it, kind of just it looks like a cool like Instagram feed almost like all your album covers are so different and um like some of them are sort of cartoonish and then some of them um you know feature different designs so can you talk to us a little bit about I guess all your different album covers because I feel like there's no like common thread that goes through any of them no absolutely I mean I'm starting to get into more conceptual stuff like to tie in like singles to like the whole project but starting out uh on Bandcamp we were just learning how to how to take pictures ourselves and uh, I remember I got in a MacBook Pro and was just trying to like uh, do everything myself so some of those album covers are just like me and like maybe a photographer friend just getting getting it done uh but then like, if you go, I'm gonna go on my band camp right now so I can see what you all are seeing. Uh, I always like to employ my friends, my artist friends too, to, um, to do some covers. So I, I see like the Polly cover, that was my homie. And he just had a child and I wanted, uh, I wanted his kid to, to help with the artwork. So it's just like very familial. Um, once we get into like, once we get past Polly, um, the Rapper Chicks cover was just super crude because we wanted we wanted the the music to be the most striking thing about it. Um, and then Don't Get Lazy Now is where I started to be way more intentional and deliberate about stuff. Um, but the, like, uh, going, actually going back down, there is some continuity between getting the van one and two. Uh, yeah. And then we took pictures ourselves, women at work too. We were in Jewel downtown and we, we took like a few pictures and they were about to kick us out. Uh, woman at work volume three, we literally had a, like a, a random stove we put that picked out at a, like a thrift store. We were just getting weird with it and trying to figure out how to how to conceptualize this music. But Women at Work was really about me getting back on the scene. No, that whole series was that was kind of what started my band camp. Um, so Women at Work one, the producer who did most of the songs on there did the actual artwork. Uh, child support was an, uh, when I worked at America Scores, which is um, an organization that does, it's weird, they do poetry and soccer. And I was an instructor for them when I lived in San Francisco. And that's actually a picture that I took with my iPhone. And so we used that. 
uh, regular black girl, that was like, I feel like that's when like Odd Future and stuff started doing like, oh, we're just gonna have like this old picture and then put the, that was my attempt at that. I made that cover. That's why like, it's a little off, <laughs> but I'm still proud of it. Uh, and Free Hugs was uh, uh, my uh, my rap friend, Prop Cause. He actually did the animation on that. And that was like me uh, adopting a pseudonym. So Hologram Kizzy was me putting out an actual like full length album. My, my label was still ignoring me but I didn't want to put out any more mixtapes. I wanted to put out more original stuff. So Free Hugs and Hug Life was like my, my attempt at that. Uh, and then, um, yeah, Shitty Punk Album is funny because we just wanted to have a shitty cover too. So that's what that is. But I think minus Where You Been Hiding, I started to get way more deliberate about my covers. Um, Don't Get Lazy Now was um, commissioned um, by um, a Chicago-based artist named Kawhi. Um, she's amazing. She does a lot of like not safe for work stuff um, with uh, women-focused uh, women-focused art. And then Flight of the Wig, I think, is probably one of my best projects as as a whole. And um, Flight of the Wig is just funny when you think about like wigs flying that's just so it's just me having fun with the cover i uh, wear my uh home, homies wigs and like having them all over the place uh where you've been hiding i made that cover too that's where it's a, that's why it's a little off as that black bar i didn't know how to get rid of it but like i'm not i'm not against making my own covers but as i move forward i i try to commission more stuff um so the cult of ba co cover was actually from the video that was a still from the video and then uh before they stop us was a, it was kind of a rush job as uh because i had the music but that was like the first band camp friday that happened last year yeah and i just wanted to see if it would work i wanted to like i didn't you know band camp friday was never a thing but i was just like well let me put out something new if they're gonna waive fees and see how that works and um ended up working well um and then Big Silky, volume one and two is the same artist. Um, he's uh, my friend who just was always drawing pictures of me and Angel all the time. Like he was always like drawing cartoons of us and just sending them to us via text just randomly. And we're just like, what the hell? Like, okay, like, well, let's do something for real. So uh, we commissioned him to do Big Silky one and two and he's actually gonna do volume three as well. Uh, so yeah, and then my, my last, um, Gaslighters, the the producer. I, I love having producers who also do graphic design because I usually just get both from them. Um, so it's this guy named Custom. He does great work. Um, so he did the cover for that and the What I Get for Being Brilliant. I wanted to look extra Black. So it's like a Black brain with a Black fist uh, because that was like at the height of the uprisings uh, here last year. Um, but, uh, but then anxious, nervous, and imperfect was, I think, probably my most intentional, uh, cover because this song is so important to me and it's just so incredibly like emotional and the artist, um, had drawn, had, had done a painting of me 
from a picture that I put on Instagram. And I asked him if I could use the painting. And he was like, well, let me repaint it because I've gotten better because it's a song I wrote years ago, um, but it was just so fitting for now. Uh, so yeah, we, I commissioned um, the artist to paint another picture and I think it came out really dope. Yeah, I'm really happy we ended on that song because I heard it earlier this month and I've listened to it like probably a hundred times since then. It's such <laughs> a beautiful song. Um, and I think a big theme of that song is the idea of forgiveness. Like you say a lot on the song, like, that's okay now. Yeah. And I kind of saw that as like, kind of you going through a journey. Could you talk about like the idea of forgiveness and what, why that song means so much to you? Yeah, because um, when I moved, I moved to Minneapolis to kind of get away from a really bad domestic violence situation. And it was the end of the rapper chicks as well. That all happened around the same time. And Rapper Chicks, like, was such a tumultuous time for me because um, we took off real fast and we were getting offers and we did, like, a hundred shows in, like, a few months. And it was, like, we were going everywhere and everyone was loving us and stuff. And, like, we actually thought that we might have had a shot to blow up. But we had so much internal, we had so many internal issues that it was just, it was messed up. And um, one of one of our one of our original uh, group members actually passed away, and that was just so sad. And that's where kind of big big silky came from because we didn't want to continue with rapper chicks with such a kind of sad past. And moving to Minneapolis, it made me swallow a lot of pride because I called Ryan Sayers out in 2015 about their treatment of me. And a lot of people shunned me after that. A lot of artists didn't want to work with me after that. And I saw a lot of my friends who were like, well, I thought we're friends, you know, still work with Rhyme Sayers. And it was like incredibly triggering all the time. And also it, it was messed up because like I moved to Minneapolis to, to kind of like uh, hide out with a friend. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to where Rhyme Sayers headquarters is. It was, I'm going... I'm leaving Chicago from a dangerous situation to go hang out with my friend for a while and get right. And then once I started feeling better, uh, once I got sober and once I started like really like working on myself, I realized how triggering it was to be in Minneapolis and how triggering it was to see, you know, a lot of my friends still come through here and like everyone was selling more tickets to me. Everybody was selling more records to me. And as a rapper, it's real easy to just be competitive. It comes from that, you know? Uh, I come from battle rap where it's just like, I'm the best, I'm the best. But then you see everyone doing much better than you uh, with metrics, you know? They got more streams, they got more fans, they got more followers. And for me, I was becoming bitter about that. And I just, one thing I didn't never wanted to be was I'd be a bitter old rapper. like. Bitter rappers are like the worst. Like they hate everything. They don't let anyone enjoy anything. And it's just always like grumpy, grumpy, grump, grump. And it's just like, man, I don't want to be this old ass grumpy artist who who, who can't um, recognize the blessings of my own career. Um, so anxious, nervous, and imperfect was like me one day, like 
sitting in my house and really uh the 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 beat like the music I had for a while, but I, and I knew I wanted the beat when I went to the studio with Afro Keys because we work together quite a bit and we have other songs. But when he played that beat for me, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do over this, but I want it. It like struck me in my heart and it's just a loop, but it, it really like was like, it made me think a lot. Just this, just the, how the chord progression went. And I was like, this, this time's gonna be emo as hell, but I don't know what I'm gonna write to it yet. Um, and then one day I just woke up and I started writing this. I mean, even the first line is wild, you know? Like I was in a I was in a relationship with someone who still to this day, I don't know if she actually had an STI. I don't know if it was true or not. I I believe that she used it as a I, I never realized this until last year that some people used their um their their status as a way to manipulate people so like you know for example you'll have sex with someone and then they don't disclose their status which is already fucked up you know but then they tell you later on that they have something but then you didn't get it so if you didn't get it then it's okay to stay with them and the manipulation is like you're being pretty much groomed for, you know, big important stuff that, you know, maybe you'll not ask too many questions about. So that was actually something that happened to me. Like I was in a relationship with someone who said they had herpes, but I never had it. And I was always getting tested and stuff. But then when, you know, I'm also polyamorous. So when we opened our relationship up, it was like, are you going to tell people that you have this? You know, like, this is insane. Um, so that's, you know, just starting off with that was just like, whoa, you know, and I realized that this song was going to be super emotional for me. And it and it and not being bitter about my career actually made my career go places that I didn't think I could go. You know, um, will I ever be famous? I I don't know. Like, I'm not trying to, though. And the wild part is as soon as I stopped caring, that's when I like got a boost and then people started caring again it was just like oh now you care now that I don't care but I mean I obviously care about my my work and I obviously care about my music and I care about this community because I think that uh the community isn't necessarily safe for uh people who aren't like just hell bent on fame because when you want to be famous that's something way different than just wanting to be an artist, you know? You want to be a famous artist. There's there's a whole different, like, trajectory that in a whole different path you need to walk. But if you just want to make music and make yourself happy and make the, the, the fans of your art and your supporters happy, then it's a much different thing. Uh, so I think Anxious, Nervous, and Imperfect is, is a culmination of me realizing that, like, all that stuff I thought I wanted, um, I don't. And that's fine. And also me getting off drugs is a big part of it too. Like I can't do no more cocaine, just pot. And I can hardly do pot so much anymore. Uh, but I think sobriety is something we should talk about more in hip hop because everyone's always high. Everyone's always drunk. And uh, not to say people don't talk about sobriety, but I think we need to hear about it even more. So yeah, it's just kind of a grown-up song me saying like you know I'm 
I'm so content and happy with where I am. And, you know, there's a sadness about that. You know, it's about failing a bunch of times and, you know, getting back up. Yeah, and I really appreciate how kind of like literally honest you are um, on this song with the lyrics. And I think I was wondering, because you said that you wrote wrote it a while ago and, you know, you say that's okay now and you talk about um, can't do no more cocaine, just pot. Has your mental state in any way like changed since writing the song, especially with, you know, this year being in quarantine and the pandemic? Um, and has it been easier or more difficult to kind of maintain that clarity that you sort of um, oh, were at when you were um, when you were doing when you were writing this song? It's wild because, like I said, I wrote this song in, in September of 2017. So I wrote this song a long time ago. And Afrokeys hit me up and was like, you want to start releasing that music we, you know, we have? And I was like, we should. And, you know, we have like five songs that are like really intense. And this one was like kind of probably the most, the most um, personal. And when I started playing the song back, I was like, wow, this is like right on time, you know, because this was pre Rhymesayers boycott that I wrote this. So it was like none of this stuff had even happened yet. This was like me having this clarity a few years ago which I'm I'm very excited about and like because sometimes as writers we write things and you know there's something else going on you know and it's like I'm, I'm of course I'm writing it but maybe my ancestors was writing it maybe God was in me when I was writing like who knows but the fact that like I wrote this that long ago and then opening it up this year or last year as we were getting getting it mixed and everything it was insane because I was like, wow, this song's really sad. And I'm not necessarily, I wasn't necessarily sad. I was like angry last year as far as like the uprisings and all the election stuff. And um, we were going in to record the final vocals of it because I had only had like a demo. And we went to the studio and my partner was like, are you going to be able to get sad about this again? And like give the performance that it needs. And I literally just listened to it for like, a few hours and then I was sad, sad, sad again. And it was, you can actually, I mean, we got the best takes, but I was crying the whole, like I was crying during recording this song. Like there was one take where I cried so much that I was like, is this okay? And they were like, yeah, but can you like bring it back some? Like, can you like not cry as much? Cause I was like, <laughs> you know, like you could hear me like doing like that after cry kind of like moan thing. They're just like, look, we want this to be emotional, but not that emotional. Like, come on, get it together. So like, it is an extremely personal song. Like I can only listen to it every now and then myself because I'll cry again. Uh, and I'm excited about it. The video is coming out soon. And we shot we shot the video in quarantine. And it was a lot, it's a lot of just like uh, me being happy in like kind of mundane situations. And it's, it's weird because, you, you know, we're not touring right now. There are no shows. And a lot of musicians are trying to navigate that. Um, and a lot of uh, musicians feel like they, they might lose their status or lose their fame because of the pandemic. And they're trying to do anything to stay relevant. So for me, I feel like I've been blessed to stay um, 
creative and inspired during this time and that I do have songs you know I have so many songs that I like are unreleased that you know when I can go back and, and kind of you know listen to this the work that I've done I can I'm I'm very proud of it and I'm very happy to to share it um and I'm in a you know place in my career where I really don't care about fame I self-release everything under my own label so I'm not you know, I'm not working for like a higher up to tell me like, oh, yes, you can do this or yet, yeah, you know, no, you can't do that. It's my budget. It's my words. It's it's my plan. Um, so there's a freedom in that. I mean, it, a lot of times if you do stuff completely independent, there are certain areas you can't get into. But it's a, but that's that's fine. That's OK. Now, I don't really care about, like I said, being super famous. I wouldn't like I wouldn't like if things were going like crazy well for me, I wouldn't stop it and be like, no, I have too much integrity to be a famous artist. Like that's not that's not where I'm at with it. But I know that like there are a lot of factors that play into blowing up that have absolutely nothing to do with the art. And I'm very focused on the art and the marketing of my art. Most definitely. That totally makes sense. Um, and yeah, it's an amazing song. And thank you so much for sharing um, with us a little bit about the process of making it. Um, and I was wondering if you feel comfortable talking about the, like what you published about Rhyme Sayers back in December of last year in the whole Boycott Rhyme Sayers movement. Um, I know, do you ever feel like, I feel like there's so much motion behind boycott rhyme sayers now in a way that there wasn't back in 2015 mm -hmm. do you ever feel maybe not bitter but a bit like regretful that that same energy wasn't there back then I got I got over it but it is triggering sometimes when you think like hey I said all, I said this stuff and even the people that believe me believe me in private um and you know I've I've had some some bitterness and like I see some people like some rappers specifically they'll like watch my story or they'll like send my organization money or you know they'll show support now but then they shun me and some of these people even like was sneak dissing me or being like oh well she you know especially living in Minneapolis man like if you if you talk shit about rhyme sayers it's like they're just like go to hell you know like they're ready to like really just lynch you and it's just like come on like this is a label this isn't you know these are human beings and human beings make mistakes you know there are good people and bad people everywhere um I think that like because of the climate last year with the whole George Floyd being murdered and a lot of rappers were like jumping jumping at the chance to like stand up for the communities and stuff and I think with that a lot of people that were harmed by a lot of these rappers were like no we're not no y'all are not gonna take this opportunity to you know up your own status by being some sort of community leader um because a lot of a lot of artists were pivoting to you know social justice and all that stuff because again we're in quarantine again we're in a pandemic so you know, if your music ain't selling, uh, you get on the front line, you might get, you know, you might get some more notoriety, you might get some more relevancy if you're standing up for the community. 
And I think a lot of people, a lot of people in the in in the Twin Cities were like, no, nah, we don't want this person speaking for us. No, we don't want this person speaking for us because this person's been harmful. And I think a lot of women and um men too, but uh women and and gender non-conforming folks were like, nah, we're gonna we're gonna say something. And what I said in 2015 got folded back into the conversation. And when I, when I realized there were people who not only heard what I said in 2015, but were like fed up with the label in 2020, it emboldened me because I already, I'm not going to be invited to anything. Right. That was the whole point. That was the whole point of me like saying things in the first place, because they had a, they had a huge, a huge um, arena show where they were celebrating everybody who ever ever did anything with Rhyme Sayers. And then they omitted me. I was the only artist that was not invited to that show. And it was glaring. Um, and it was wrong. It was just dead ass wrong, you know? Um, so fast forwarding to 2020, I think people remembered that I had already gone through the fire uh, with them. And now, and I, in 2020, I definitely didn't care anymore. I wasn't scared anymore. You know, I was scared in 2015 and I went through like the, the addiction part of my life really spiraled at that point. Um, cause I didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, and I definitely started using, uh, more drugs and alcohol, just like on a daily basis, just kind of escape that reality. Uh, so getting clean and getting in therapy had a, you know, in the interim had a lot to do with me being able to just stand in my truth as it were in 2020 and not be afraid of like the consequences because it's like, what, what are y'all going to do? Like not put out my next album. What are you not, what are you going to do? Not put me on your festival. Like, first of all, your festival's not even going on this year because of the pandemic. There's no shows because of the pandemic. Like there's nothing that you can offer or not offer me. I'm not in this for money. You know, there's not there's not a dollar amount that you could offer me to, that would that would be like, oh, that's enough for my pain, you know. So. So for me, it was the time for me to obviously stand up. And then after months of boycotting, I realized I was advocating for a lot of women and then wasn't they hadn't told my full story. So that's where the medium article came into play, but also because when you do survivor work and you hold space for survivors, it, it is so triggering. It is so sad. And for me, I was becoming angry and bitter again about this in a way that I hadn't felt in a long time. So there were times where I'd like take month long, two month long breaks off the internet and like, just kind of understand like that a lot of this work is done offline. It's like, you can tweet your ass off all day. You can tweet all day about what you're gonna do and make 80 statements and you can, you know, get your slides together and do all your TikToks and stuff. But at the end of the day, like, it's that offline work. It's that holding space for your community in person or on Zoom or whatever. Um, that's really is what's going to stick. So my Medium article was a way for me to pivot to that while while being absolutely transparent about why why I went so hard at them. Because I know these people. You know, like we're not besties. Like I was besties with like one of them for like a few years. But it's like, I know how y'all operate. You know, it's like when it comes to call out culture, sometimes 
it gets messed up because people don't actually know people. They just heard something. With me, it was like, oh, no, nah. like, nah, I know y'all did this because y'all did this to me, you know? And a lot of some of these people um, I've even had encounters with where I tried to ask them, like, wait, what, what, what went on with this situation? And it was just like, I got lied to or gaslit. So when you, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. There was just way too many people coming out with stories that, you know, that I just felt, I felt compelled to lend my platform, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. Thank you so much for sharing and for always being so transparent um, with this. Um, But sort of moving forward, I guess, how do you see your style um, and music sort of evolving next? Um, just, just for me, making sure that because I've been in the game so long, my goal, my goals changed. Like when I was a shorty, my goal was to just be able to rap on any beat, so rap slow, rap fast, whatever. And then it was, you know, make songs that, you know, were, you know, were, were more like exciting or whatever. And but now my goal is to just not make the same song twice, make sure that I'm so intentional about my art and my artwork and things like that, that it really is a representation of how I'm feeling at the time. And I, you know, make sure that I'm spending my money on things wisely because I don't think I'd ever sign to a label again. And what that means is then that means I'm, I'm the budget. So it's when I spend money on outsourcing things to producers and to um, strategists and to um, visual artists to just make sure that I'm very um, cognizant of who I'm working with. And the songs I think will will continue to go in a personal um, personal way, but like also speaking about what's happening in the world but also doing it in a way that's thoughtful and not necessarily like corny or anything. I think that's the goal to speak about these things that are happening um, because these are the types of songs that I, did, I didn't necessarily hear when I was coming up. So I, I'm keeping the next generation in mind as I'm writing, you know, these, you know, this new stuff. And we're working on Big Silky 3 now, which is like the aftermath of, um, I don't know if you've heard volume one and two, but volume one was really more of a um, celebration of Henny, who who was our bandmate that passed away. And it was really just a project that we knew she would have wanted to rap on. We picked beats that we thought that she would like. And we, um, you know, pick melodies and things like that because she used to love to hear Angel sing. So we made sure that it was full of melody and, 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 and beats that she would rap on potentially. Uh, Big Silky Volume 2 is just in, in the midst of the uprisings here in Minneapolis. So it was like all angry and fuck the police and all that. And I think Big uh, Volume 3 is more about, okay, we've, we've gotten through this and we're waiting on the trial. And also we just did this whole boycott and it's really about the aftermath of thinking about now, where are we now, you know? Um, so I'm slowly working on the next song, just Psalm 1 full length album. I don't know when that's gonna come out, but I'm being very deliberate about my content 
and how I'm attacking the songs because that's the that's a big problem for for artists I think that are really versatile that can rap on different stuff like no one ever you don't ever pick a lane you're just like I can rap on anything and then you just do that and it's kind of random and even if it works I think I want my stuff to be more cohesive and conceptual so that's you know that's kind of where I'm at right now Awesome. I know we're very much looking forward to everything you're going to put out in the future and we'll be checking for it. I think those are all the questions we had, but we wanted to just end with, do you have any advice for young artists? I know we have a lot of younger artists that listen. Do you have any advice for them about how to either get their foot in the game or like stay true to themselves? Yeah, I would say that as far as like um, your image as a young artist, you can, you know, don't just do what you see other people doing, especially don't just go with like what's hot right now because it's just gonna be for right now. And if you paint yourself into a corner, you know, or get a diamond in the middle of your forehead or something, in a couple of years, you're gonna be mad at that, you know, cause you're gonna feel like, oh, well that was, that was what was hot, but that's not necessarily hot anymore, but that's what I do. And you might feel stifled. So I just feel like as, as, as far as like a young artist, figure out, play with different things, but figure out, you know, what you want your image to be. And make sure you make that very clear, because if you don't, the, the audience will make your image for you. And that might not necessarily be what you wanted it to be. So and, and not to take yourself too seriously, like have fun. And recognize that like even little accomplishments are, are accomplishments. You know, you might get 20 listens on your song and you say, well, it's not 20,000. It's not 20 million. Yeah, but it's 20. It's 20 more than you had before. And that's something that you can grow into something bigger. So, you know, not to not to like look at the macro all the time and look at why you're doing it. Thank you so, so much. Just dropped some knowledge bombs on us. <laughs> really appreciate you being here. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Two Virgins. We hope you enjoyed getting to know Psalm 1 and check out her single, Anxious, Nervous, and Imperfect. You can find this episode on our website, quarantinecontent.com, or on our weekly newsletter, The Q. See you next week.